Part two of Ophelia, the Rose of Elsinore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Ophelia, the Rose of Elsinore. From the Girlhood of Shakespeare's Heroines by Mary Cowden Clark. Part two. After this inaugural meal, however, when Batilda, as a matter of course, had taken charge of her nursling, Jutha contrived to secure the exclusive care of the child from that time forth. She had it to sleep with her in her own little bed, the wooden cot serving for a day-couch merely. She fed it, she washed and dressed it, she amused it, she danced and tossed it, she held it on her knee when she sat, she carried it about with her when she went out. She dedicated herself entirely to its comfort and happiness, and made it in return her own joy and delight. She would have been its servant, if such willing ministry as hers could be called servitude. She would have been its slave, if such voluntary bondage as hers could be slavery. As it was, she was the little creature's fond, devoted girl-mother. She had that peculiar affection which young girls have for a baby, the childish, fondling, protective feeling, mingled with a sense of power, as towards a doll, or a plaything possession. The tender, thoughtful solicitude, the instinct of motherly feeling, as towards a little being dependent on her for life and welfare. On the morning after Ophelia's arrival at the cottage, she was sitting on the young girl's knee, in that half-drowsy state of quiet which is apt to succeed a violent game of romps. Tired with laughter, panting with exertion, she lay back to enjoy complete rest and silence while her eyes fell dreamily upon a figure on the other side of the room. It was that of the hairy, loutish boy. He was lying half-crouching, half-kneeling in a recess in the wall opposite, killing flies. As the insects buzzed and flitted to and fro, he eyed them from beneath his shaggy brows, with snorting eagerness, and tongue outlawing ever and anon taking aim with his hairy paw, and at each successful dab that sent a crushed and mangled fly to swell the heap which already lay there, the lout gave a grin. Sometimes he would chop among the mound of dead, with a knife that lay beside him. Sometimes he would seize one of the living ones by the wing or the leg, and hold it between finger and thumb, watching its buzzing struggles, and grinning at its futile flutterings then let it go again, to pounce upon and deal it its death-blow. The child lay looking at him in a sort of bewitched inability to remove her eyes from an object that filled her with uneasy wonder, while Jutha, accustomed to the uncouth cruelty of her idiot brother, Ulf, had not perceived that the child's attention was fixed upon him. Presently Batilda's voice sounded from an inner room, desiring Jutha to come and help her with some household matter that she had in hand. Jutha placed the little Ophelia softly on the floor, put some playthings near her, and bade her sit still for a few minutes till she came back. The child sat, with her eyes unmoved from the fly-killer. Presently he turned and spied her. He gave one of his silent grins. "'Are you one of the elf-folk?' he said. No answer. "'Or the trolls?' asked he again. No answer. "'You're little enough, and pretty enough. But I remember you're the little court lady.' He continued to stare down upon her, grinning, as she kept her eyes fixed upon him. "'Come to the bear!' he exclaimed presently in his discordant tones. "'Come here and shake hands with me.' 
No answer but a shake of the head, as she eyed the huge paw held out to her. "'Come to the bear, I tell ye,' growled he. "'I shan't eat ye. Only hug ye. Come to the bear.' "'No,' desperately, with a more vehement shake of the head. "'What if I threw this at ye, and knocked off your legs like one of them?' said he, pointing with his knife to the heap of dead and dying flies stripped of their legs and wings. Ophelia gave a startled scream. In ran Jutha and her mother. "'Little court lady's proud, and won't shake hands with Ulf the bear,' he said, lolling out his tongue and grinning. "'What have you been about, brute?' said Batilda. "'Frightening my baby, I shouldn't wonder. Take care how you ever do that, once for all, mind, or I'll beat you as long as I can stand over you.' "'And that ain't long now,' grinned he. I get bigger and beyond your strength. You hurt your own hands more than you do my shoulders when you thump me now." "'You limb,' said his mother, shaking her fist at him. "'But mind my words. You dare not frighten my baby. And if you ever do, it'll be the worse for you. She's the great Lord Polonius' child, sent here to be taken care of, not to be harmed or frighted, and he'll punish you if I can't should his child be hurt. I didn't want to hurt her. I wanted to hug her, and she wouldn't let me." "'Don't touch her at all, Ulf, dear, to hurt or to hug her,' said his sister Jutha. "'She don't know that our bear's hugs are harmless. She don't know that you're called in sport, Ulf, the bear. Let her get used to you before you try to make friends with her. She got used to me before she'd come to me from mother, you know, last night.' "'You always make me do what you will, Jutha,' grunted Ulf. "'But I don't mind pleasing you. You please me, and give the bear things he likes, sweet food, good eating." Sigurd's cottage was situated in a pleasant spot, one of the most fertile in all the island. It overlooked a green valley, embosomed in swelling hills, and towards the northeast it was screened by a thick and lofty forest of primeval trees. The soil in the immediate neighbourhood of the cottage was favourable to vegetation, but among the hills it was rocky and sandy more in keeping with the prevailing character of Danish ground. The air was generally temperate, though moist, being subject to mists, which in the more inclement seasons became dense fogs, and in the winter there were fierce winds with frequent snow, hail, and sleet. But during the summer and autumn months the climate was far from ungenial, and Jutha took care that her charge should then enjoy as much of the open air as possible. They would go forth at quite early morning, and with some food in Jutha's basket, would ramble abroad all day long. Sometimes they made exploring expeditions among the hills, now stopping to sit among the craggy rocks, now loitering in some curious cavern or grotto, watching the plashings and oozings of the water that made its way through crevice and fissure, down dropping amid the moss and lichens, and long stalactites, and bright spars that behung the roof and sides. Sometimes they would wander in the green depths of the forest, and sit on the moss-grown gnarled roots of some old oak or elm-tree, or beneath a spreading beech, or tall feathery ash, while the young girl-mother would bid the child mark the shape of the leaf, and branch, and bark, and bough, of rugged trunk and smooth bowl, until she learned to know tree from tree, and to amuse herself by distinguishing one kind from another. Jutha would point out, with rustic taste, the luxuriant masses of foliage that enriched the monarch oak, the noble strength and amplitude of its sturdy body, 
the vigorous growth of its giant arms, the strange grotesque forms into which its ramifications spread, in sinuous and angular branches, the deep indentation of its leaves, the curious cup and smooth fruit of its acorns, the mottled red and white of its apples, the pearly berries of its parasite mistletoe. She would show her the straight, smooth-rinded stem of the beech-tree, and how the pointed, glossy leaves grew in palmated branches, and flat, fan-like sprays, ever up-inclined, like huge, sylvan hands raised heavenward. She told her which was the stately elm, with its graceful height and amplitude of leaf and bough. She taught her to know the towering ash, with its light waving plumes of green, the birch, with its pensile sweeps of slender twigs behung with small round leaves, the alder and elder, with their close dwarf clusters, the firs and pines with their upright stems, brown-coned and sober in the sullen season, emerald-tufted and cheerful in springtime, the sallow with its downy catkins, the willow with its sad drooping tresses mirrored in the stream. She would take her to bowery thickets in the wood, where the pansy and the columbine grew wild, and they would peep among the grass, for shy lurking violets, and pile up their basket with bright daisies, and bring home roots of rosemary, fennel, and rue, for the herb-corner of their garden. Sometimes Jutha would lead the little one as far as the seashore, where they would pick up shells, as they strayed along the smooth sand and when the billows came tumbling in, crested with foam, rolling over one another in huge, monstrous frolic, like lion whelps at play, and when the sea-breeze blew freshly, and the spray flew over the rocks, bounding and tossing and breaking against them, flinging itself wildly apart and abroad in silver showers, as it caught the gleaming sunlight, the young girl would tell the child how these vast waters of the sea, that now looked so bright and gay, grew dark and threatening and angry when the stormy winds of the north lashed them into fury. She told her of the adventurous men who put forth in search of the fish that abounded on these shores. She told her how they braved the dangers of shoals, sunken rocks, banks of quicksand and whirlpools to gain a bare livelihood and how sometimes their boats were sucked in, and buried beneath the waves that now looked so buoyant and sparkling, then murky, tumultuous, menacing, fraught with danger and doom. For a few moments the little Ophelia would stand with her eyes fixed upon the wide expanse of sea, surging and heaving and swelling before her, while a feeling of awe would creep over her at the thought of a watery death, of the whelming billows, of the down-sinking struggle, of the stifled breath, of the stopped sight and hearing, of all the heart-despair of those poor drowning souls of whom she heard tell, the brave fishermen. Then, with the true happy ease of childish spirits, incapable of long dwelling upon a mournful idea, she would turn once more to her shell-collection admiring their pretty colours and curious shapes, and putting some of the larger ones to her ear, that she might listen to the sea roaring within them, as it were distant, yet close beside her. These rambles abroad with Jutha were the pleasantest periods of the little Ophelia's sojourn among her foster family. When she was at the cottage itself, she was dull, uncomfortable, uneasy, with a vague feeling of disquietude and timidity, almost amounting to a sense of harm and danger. She felt herself strange and apart among so many people nowise suited to her. 
After the first interest and curiosity excited by the vision of the little lady among them, Sigurd and his two elder sons, Harold and Ivar, took little notice of her, beyond a passing nod, or a good-humoured grin when they were at home, which was not often or for long. They rose before it was well-nigh light, and were out and off to work by daybreak, taking with them the means for their noontide meal, and returning to the cottage only in time for the supper, which immediately preceded their retiring to rest. Batilda was ever occupied with household drudgery, in which she frequently enlisted the services of Jutha, so that neither from the nurse or her daughter could the child obtain much companionship when within the house. She was thus thrown entirely upon her own resources, and these were few or none for procuring entertainment, never having learned to play or to amuse herself from any child of her own age. Children from each other learn the sports, as well as gain the ideas proper to their time of life and it is seldom that a solitary little one either thinks, acts, or amuses itself, like those who have been brought up in the society of others. She would, for the most part, when at the cottage, sit still, watching Ulf, the idiot boy, with a sort of helpless, fascinated, involuntary attention. She had never been prevailed upon by his attempted advances towards an intimacy between them, any more than on the first morning when she had observed his hideous sport, and he had sought to lure her towards him to be hugged but although she would never go close to him, or suffer him to approach her, yet she seemed to derive a sort of desperate pleasure, and uncomfortable gratification, a strange, half-excited, half-dreading enjoyment in hovering about his vicinity, watching fearfully and wonderingly his uncouth ways. She looked tremblingly loath at the very time she gazed upon him, shrinking and averse while she hung about near his haunts but it seemed as if she could not refrain from noting what possessed such mingled attraction and repulsion for her. It was with a kind of dismayed interest that she would stand aloof, silently, or sit, perfectly still and motionless, to watch with fixed eyes and suspended breath the ugly, odious Ulf. Once he was squatting near the hearth, with a huge foot clasped in each of his large hairy hands, his chin resting between his knees, his leering bloodshot eyes staring greedily towards a string of small birds, which were dangling to roast by the wood-embers. "'Have some?' said he abruptly, turning to the child, as he became aware of her presence. "'They'll soon be done.' The little Ophelia shook her head. "'But they're nice, I can tell you. They're nice to sing.' but they're nicer to eat." And he smacked his great broad lips that were drawn wide from ear to ear. Ophelia shuddered. "'Hark, how they frizzle!' said he, and his large flapping ears moved and shifted as he spoke. "'Sniff! How savoury they smell!' And the black, bristly nostrils gaped and expanded, while the blood rushed into his face as was its wont when he felt pleasure, and all the lines of his countenance were contorted, writhing to and fro, as he gave his peculiar silent grin. Presently he clutched the roast in his fist, and exclaiming, "'They're done! They're done!' held it out towards the little girl, repeating, "'Have some? You'd better!' while his eyes gloated beneath his shaggy brows at her and at the viands. "'Isn't it too hot for you to hold?' asked the little Ophelia, as if she couldn't help putting the question, from wonder to see him grasp the burning food. "'Ha-ha! The bear's paw's too tough to be scalded, and I like my victuals hot,' said Ulf, thrusting one of the birds into his mouth whole, crunching it through, bones and all, and then bolting it at one gulp. 
as the child listened to the noise he made, his fangs champing into the bones and mangled flesh, and looked at the savage greed with which he crammed, she thought he seemed some wild beast ravening his prey. There was something cruel and malicious in this idiot boy's mode of doing even simpler things than eating singing birds, or killing flies, which gave an air of horrible meaning in the little girl's eyes to his acts. She saw him once tearing up a rose, and it seemed a tyranny and a barbarity, as if inflicted on a sentient creature. Leaf after leaf fell, as if they were rent limbs. When he held up the bare stalk, the stripped calyx and yellow centre looking like a skeleton, and he twitched out the golden stamens as though they were eyelashes, or teeth. He appeared to take a ferocious delight in ripping up and destroying flowers, and would pluck off the winged petals from sweet-peas, as if he loved to deprive them of their seeming power of fairy flight. The vindictive satisfaction with which he exercised this power upon things of beauty and fragility, and the air of triumph with which he gloated over his work of ravage, as he leered at her after each feat of the kind, made the little girl always feel somehow as if she were herself the bird, or the fly, or the rose, or whatsoever other object might chance to be the victim of Ulf's destructive propensity. And yet he expresses liking for her, not enmity, but it seems to her as if his liking were destruction. More than ever she shrinks from his approaches, yet still she cannot resist watching him. Dread and disgust she feels, but withal a strange irresistible excitement which impels her to look upon what she fears and loathes. However, this is only when bad weather keeps her indoors, when the sky is clear and neither snow falls nor wind howls, nor mists hover, nor rain showers threaten, the little Ophelia coaxes Jutha abroad, and again they sally forth together for a long ramble through forest, field, or valley, among the rocks or along the seashore. And then the young girl amuses the child with telling her quaint tales, and singing her old ballads, such as she has heard from her mother. There is one strange legend of a princess, who is shut up by the king her father in a high strong tower, to be safe from the bold seeking of an adventurous young knight who loved her well, but who had no other inheritance than his good sword and his brave spirit, to entitle him to match with one of so high degree. Nowise daunted by the difficulty of obtaining his mistress, the knight-lover set forth for the strong tower, resolved to try if fortune and his own valour might not avail to rescue her thence. His road lay through a wild district where the storm-gods have their dwelling. He encountered successively Snorro, the divinity who holds the snow, hail, and sleet at his command, Frohr, he who scatters the crisp and sparkling rime upon the branches of trees, hangs frost diamonds upon the leaves and weeds and upon every blade of grass, and bedrops the eaves of houses and roofs of cottages and mouths of caverns with long, slender, down-pending icicles. Drawn-drawer, he who bids the cataracts take their rushing leaps over crag and fell, and the mountain torrents their roaring, tumultuous course through rift and gully, sweeping all before them. And lastly he met Dumbrunderod, the mighty ruler of the thunder, the dread wielder of the destroying bolts, the speeder of the fatal lightning-stroke. But not all the terrors of the storm-gods, not even the flashing glance and fire-darting nostrils of the thunder-ruler, who rolled angrily and threateningly by in his war-chariot, casting furious glances, and hurling scoffing words at the daring mortal who ventured thither, could cause the brave heart of the knight to blench one jot in its stout courage and determination. 
he restored the fierce glance, and gave back defiant words in reply to the storm-god's contemptuous ones, saying that all the terrors of earth, air, fire, water, of the sky above and of the dark regions below, would vainly strive to conquer his resolution, or to extinguish his love. That so long as life and limb were uninjured, his spirit would remain unvanquished, persisting still in its purpose to win his mistress, or die in the attempt. The storm-gods burst into a loud peal of mirth, that shook the surrounding hills. They could not but laugh to hear the puny mortal declare his small, mighty will in opposition to theirs. The hearty laugh exploded with a crash, that sent a thousand echoes roaring through upland and valley, while Dumbrunderod swore that the human pygmy was a fine fellow of his inches, and showed a spirit becoming a better race, that for his part he knew how to allow for these fiery natures, hasty in their anger, prompt in their deeds, indomitable in their will, inevitable in their undertakings. He vowed that so far from resenting the knight's defiance of his and his brother storm-god's power, that he applauded his ardour of courage and of love, and that it deserved the assistance it should receive. At first the knight thought this promise of friendly aid and protection was strangely evinced, for there suddenly arose a tempest of such violence, that it seemed threatening to carry all before it to destruction, himself included. A hurricane of wind tore up trees by their roots, and scattered them far and wide. The torrents and cataracts pelted down the hills, as if they would have inundated the whole face of the plain. The heavens poured forth a deluge of snow, rain, sleet, and hail, all at once, while incessant claps of thunder rent the air, and sheets of lightning glared fearful illumination upon all this scene of gale and tempest. But when at length the knight succeeded in forcing his way through the storm-blast, he found that it had done its master's work of beneficent help right well, for upon reaching the strong high tower, he saw it levelled to the ground by a friendly thunderbolt, which had struck it, leaving his mistress unharmed, who stepped forth from the ruins, flung herself into his arms, and fled with him that instant to a far distant country, where they lived happily thenceforth, safe from royal tyranny. There was another story of Jutha's, which told of a wicked steward, who, left in his master's castle with charge to watch and guard from harm the lord's only child, a passing fair daughter, proved false to his function of protector, stole the lady away from her home, and would fain have forced her into a marriage with his own unworthy self. But the unhappy maiden, resolved to die rather than suffer the degradation of such a union, flung herself from the window of the high chamber in which the false steward had confined her, and so untimely perished. Then the lord, her father, returning home to his castle, and hearing how it had been despoiled by the miscreant in whom he had confided, ceased not until he had discovered his wronger, whom he caused to be tried for his heinous offences, and sentenced to death. In consideration of his treacherous breach of trust, and the death his deed had caused, the false steward was broken on a wheel, and died in cruel torture. End of Part Two